Welcome to Poets and Writers. This is Henry McCarthy, WEHC 90.7, coming to you from the beautiful Emory and Henry College campus. Wow, we got a guest for you today. We've got Richard Stone, and he's going to talk about story intelligence. You know, around the mountain here in the valleys, Richard, we love to tell stories. So, Richard, welcome to the show today. Oh, pleasure to be with you, Henry, and uh, look forward to sharing a little of what I know about story and its power in our lives. Well, as we like to ask around the valleys and the mountains here, where are you from, Richard? Well, I live now in Decatur, Georgia, which is, you know, like a part of Atlanta, but uh, grew up in Tampa, Florida, spent many, many years living in the Orlando area, one point worked for a former division of Disney called Ideas uh, when I was down there. And uh, but have been in the Atlanta area now for seven plus years. Well, we're delighted to have you on the show. And folks out there, listeners, I first heard Richard down in Winston Salem, North Carolina, with Scott Livingood. Isn't that correct, Richard? That's correct. Yeah, Scott and I uh, met oh maybe twenty five years ago, something like that. I don't know, twenty twenty five years ago. Uh, we were, uh, he, at the time he was the CEO of Krispy Kreme Donuts and, uh, I was on the board of the International Storytelling Center in Jonesboro, Tennessee. And I got to know Scott pretty well and he joined the board. And, uh, so we've been collaborating together over the, oh, the last many years. Uh, and, uh, so StoryWork International, our organization is, uh, kind of a, result of that collaboration and um, and Scott was also the co-author with me on the book story intelligence well and, you, and he told his story too about getting to Jonesboro and I'm going to jump in here and we're going to talk about Jonesboro and when I knew it you know it's close to Davy Crockett and his home place and I was born yeah. in Johnson City so well I knew it as Jonesboro B-O-R-O you know and then uh, yeah. Jimmy Neal Smith and all of them came in and uh Richter Moore, I think, and man, they made it the storytelling capital of the universe, I think, along with a lot of other people. So uh, Scott was also, how did he get, how, so did you guys met uh, there? Or? Well, yeah, so he was at Krispy Kreme, and uh, and he was traveling. His, his current wife, uh, his second wife, uh, was from near that area, and he was uh, visiting there, and he discovered Jonesboro. <laughs> he went, "Well, this place looks terrific," and he kind of discovered what the storytelling center was up to. And he goes, "Oh my gosh, this fits a lot with what I would want to accomplish with our foundation at Krispy Kreme." And one thing led to another, and Krispy Kreme became a sponsor of the festival, and he joined the board, and that's how he and I got to know each other. Well, and um, mm -hmm. so, actually, I spent uh, a few years, uh, for a couple of years, I was coming up to Winston a lot to work with him, and we're continuing to work together, but I'm, uh, the drive, it was too much driving for me. I was ready to kind of be a little closer to home, so um, doing a lot of stuff virtually, like everybody today, right? Well, Richard Stone, we're going to jump around here a little bit, you know, and I asked you where you were from, and of course, we like a little gossip, and we all like to find out who your mentors were and so on. But uh, one of the first stories that you got interested in was Huckleberry Finn. Talk a little bit about that. <laughs> well, you know, uh, my, my, I remember my father reading me uh, some of the Huck, Huck Finn and, and, and how that story was just sort of uh, pivotal for me as a child. And, you know, I think it captures everybody's imagination, especially young people, a, little, a young boy heading off, and have to have adventures, and um, 
but I, my my real love and, and engagement with story did not happen until the um, fall of 1989, uh, where I had met a few months previously some people on an airplane coming back from a hiking trip out west, and and we were comparing notes on the best trails to hike. And at some point they said, "Have you ever been to the National Storytelling Festival?" And I had never heard of it. And I said, no, what, the, what is that? <laughs> you know. <laughs> and at the time, I was running an ad agency, and I was uh, added up for sale. And I was looking for every excuse I could to get out of town and get away from the company and do something else. And um, when they were getting ready to come up to the festival, they said, hey, we've got a motorhome. We're going to drive up. You want to come? And I said, sure. And there's a wonderful storyteller, a guy named Michael Cotter, who's a third-generation farmer from Minnesota who was telling stories there. They were simple stories about growing up on that farm and the things he had seen change over the years. And I was just powerfully moved by it. And I, I had a friend who was a writer who had come with me, and uh, I turned to her and I said, this is what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. So I came back. I had uh, actually was putting together a, a fundraiser with a friend and and we were trying to figure out what to do. And I came back and said, we, Haiti, we need to tell our life stories. And uh, we created an evening called Stick and Stone. And uh, it was a real success. We had our nightclub in Winter Park, Florida. They gave us their space. It was a Sunday night after Thanksgiving. They were always closed Sunday night anyway. And that was uh, my launch into storytelling. Stick and, and Stone. So that was, yeah, Stick, that was 1989. Talk a little bit about Stick and Stone. How did you come by that? Well, it, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I, I think we each have a story, and often uh, we belittle our own stories or we think someone else's story mm -hmm. is more important than our story. And my friend Haiti has a, a remarkable, I would say, beginning story. Her parents were um, rounded up by the Nazis and ended up in a detention camp in southern France. And that was a stopping point for just heading off to Auschwitz and uh, to the death camps. And uh, through a series of miracles, uh, they escaped. Mm -hmm. But Haiti was conceived in that, in that concentration camp, in that camp. And uh, through the action of people who could probably only be described as angels who risked their life, they made their way from France all the way to Switzerland, which was a neutral country. And that's where Haiti was born, <laughs> in, a, in a refugee camp in Switzerland. Me, on the other hand, I grew up in Tampa, Florida, in the suburbs of Tampa, Florida. I didn't have anything uh, nearly as remarkable as that in my childhood. But we created an evening of stories because uh, we, we all have stories, and they were reminiscing about our childhoods, and, and then we created two characters. Mine was a composite of my grandfather's, mm. and uh, we, I named him Morris Zavitsky. And uh, and hers was Edna Zippelbaum. And uh, so we would uh, have a very quick change. I would put on a little sport coat, a little cap, and let my glasses kind of down to the end of my nose, and I would become Morris. And one of the stories that I told that evening was a, a story that I, I grew up hearing that my grandfather, George, uh, who was on my mother's father, had stolen his brother's ticket to come to America. And, of course, as a young person, I, I, I never sat down with George 
and said, George, tell me about that. Wow. <laughs> you really stealing? But that was told like it was sort of an apocryphal story in the family. And, of course, George is gone and, and no longer living, and there's uh, no one around left to, to verify whether that happened or not, but I'm pretty sure it did happen. And uh, so I, I told the story of what it must be like, have been like for a young boy at age 13 hearing his brother come home every day talking about America. And, and my grandfather, when he was growing up, he was uh, very European. He, mm-hmm. I never saw him not wearing a, a tie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was always had a tie on. He'd be out in the garden working. He'd have a tie on. He was very, very formal. Mm-hmm. But there's a tradition in Europe, uh, Eastern Europe especially, where they'll take a cube of sugar and they'll put it between their teeth and drink their tea through the sugar. And, of course, the sugar melts through the hot tea. And so I imagine that uh, George's brother would come home every day and, and fill him with stories about what's possible in America. In America, you could have a cube of sugar with every cup of tea. Imagine that. And in America, you could be somebody. You know, who were they? They were nobody. They were living in a very poor part of Poland in what would have been what's often referred to as a shtetl, as a small village. And uh, so I imagine that the day his brother came home with the ticket and said, I'm leaving for America tomorrow and left the ticket on the mantle. George stole away in the early hours of the morning with the ticket and came in his stead. Well, then. And, um, you know, all of, our, all of us have sort of sometimes very odd little stories in our family. And, um, it, you know, George uh, did bring his brother over. But the story that's told by my uncle Sonny was that uh, they were living in Lima, Ohio, and there was a man who lived uh, in an apartment above the the business that George George was in the janitorial business, and this is during this the depression, and obviously he was doing pretty well because they even had a driver for their car, and when this man died, uh, my uncle Sonny discovered that it was his uncle, it was George's brother. Wow. Now, what that was about, that George was so embarrassed by his brother, I don't know. You know, probably he brought his brother over, but his brother was much older and just couldn't make it in America. But George came at age 13. It's hard to even conceive someone at age 13 coming to this country. And uh, But that's... uh, so that so anyway, was the story, the, yeah. That's so, the story. So, you had, <laughs> so that was one of the stories. So the Jonesboro connection was, and those are tall tales, you know, and different. And so you were on a plane, you were going hiking, and you found out about Jonesboro, and that put you into the storytelling, so to speak, <clears throat> program. But let's back up just a moment today, and we're talking listeners around the valley here. We're talking to a very, very interesting personality in person, uh, who's done a great deal in his life, Richard Stone, and his latest book, of course, is uh, Story Intelligence. But talk a l- little bit about how you evolved, you know, because you went into you went to college and your parents wanted you to be something and you decided to be something else. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well, you know, uh, I, I don't think I was ever made to follow a traditional path, uh, but uh, um, I was in a graduate program in psychology and it was not doing it for me. And I was at the time more interested in painting and art than I was in psychology. And I ended up taking a, a kind of a, 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 it was a leave of absence, but it was a, it to be a permanent leave of absence and went off and studied painting in Chicago. And uh, at some point I looked around at people who were in their 50s and 60s still waiting tables to make enough money to 
buy paint so they could in canvas so they could do their paintings. And I thought, you know, I'm not sure this is exactly the life I want to have. And uh, I came back to Florida and ended up talking myself, talking my way into an ad agency. And I, I had no experience, but uh, that's that's a whole story into itself. We won't go there. Mm-hmm. But so I, and I eventually ended up starting my own ad agency. Mm-hmm. And um, so I kind of cut my teeth on writing and graphic arts and creating good advertising for our clients. And did you get involved with at, Disney World at that time? Or when I left and sold the agency and got involved with storytelling, I, I, I soon discovered I didn't want to be performing so much. Uh, I enjoyed teaching and, and looking at applications of story and how people could become better leaders through story, how maybe we could improve healthcare through story. And uh, along the way, at, uh, in those early years, Disney was developing a thing called the Disney Institute. Now, they, it's been co- that name's been co-opted by a different entity since that within the Disney Kingdom, but they were creating a, a kind of an educational vacation where you could come to Disney and take courses and all kinds of things. And uh, I got hired to develop the uh, the story curricula, mm-hmm. the story curricula, and mm-hmm. and along that well, all the way, uh, their publishing house Hyperion uh, was uh, interested in what was going on there, and I got I got a call one day and said, hey, uh, we understand that you're an expert in story, and we think story is the next best biggest thing coming, and would you be interested in writing a book? Oh. <laughs> Do you have any ideas for a book? Yeah. And I said. Well, yeah, I have some ideas about the the healing power of story, and so uh, we end. Uh, I ended up writing a book called "The Healing Art of Storytelling." Human which, art uh, of came storytelling, nineteen ninety five. Well, and uh, this Dis- but that was some time mm-hmm. ago. And, and then, and, and it has slowly evolved through the years. And have done, I've, I did work with the Disney organization, consulting with them, and then eventually went to work with this small division called Ideas that was on the back lot of MGM Studios and became their story analytics master. And it was probably the best title you could have in the universe, you know. But we were doing some very interesting work uh, looking at how to use story in branding and advertising, uh, using it obviously in entertainment. We were developing a variety of entertainment products. And and while I was there, I helped develop a, a healthcare product called StoryCare. And what people don't know about healthcare is that healthcare is a very dangerous place. Actually, you don't want to be in the hospital if you can avoid it because the potential for being harmed is very high. It's it's not a safe environment, uh, and and it's usually attributable to breakdowns in teamwork and communication. And we developed this product. Essentially, it's a library of stories, and these are stories about people who are being cared for. And uh, because teamwork or communication breaks down, uh, they're either harmed or, or nearly harmed or, or killed. And they're all about four minutes long. They're very dramatic. And we had uh, one of our team members at Ideas was a, an expert, an expert in, um, in what's called uh, sound sweetening in the film business. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of work that gets done to add sound in to, uh, to create an environment because they may have been filming from a distance and they couldn't, they, they couldn't have a, a boom mic there to, to, to get the sound of you running across the rocks. They had to bring that in later. So we would, he would bring these sounds in. And so it, it would feel like you were in the emergency room and all the, wow. the kinds of noises you would hear in the emergency room were there and very immersive. And that product is still out there. And so, uh, so, so that's, 
Mm-hmm. That was part of the journey for me in looking at the power story is a powerful way of teaching and engaging people with changing their attitudes and behavior and, and reflecting on themselves and thinking about uh, how they could improve their lives. And um, so that led to actually another healthcare product called Living Stories that we developed with Novant Health, which is in Winston-Salem. Mm-hmm. And uh, it turns out that when patients get a chance to reminisce about the positive experiences of their life or the times where they've overcome challenges, it actually reduces their anxiety and actually improves their potential, their resilience to uh, recover from whatever they've been going through in the hospital. So So, um, mm -hmm. we actually developed a training program with Novant Health around that. So Mm -hmm. I began became very interested in the ways you can use story Mm -hmm. in a a way to make your life better. So Uh, so, there's the the entertainment stories, which Mm -hmm. happen in Jonesboro, where it's just great to sit and listen to great storytellers. So that's the entertainment side. But that's been Mm -hmm. been the focus of my work uh, ever since. And you took that into the business side, uh, I think we can say. Now, I want to talk about, you have a number of books out. How many books do you have? But I want to get to this because we watch the clock here. You know, we're 28 minutes, and I want to be sure to pick your brain because you've got some great work here. And you've written a number of books, but your latest book would be Story Intelligence that you and Scott Livingood, I believe, co-wrote. Yeah. wrote that together. Let's share with our okay. audience. Okay, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah, so in my work, we, we discovered that we think there's seven powers of story. Mm-hmm. And that it's story, we're swimming in stories. We're, a story is fundamental to being a human being. But it, 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 it intersects with every aspect of our of humanity. And <laughs> stories can transport us into another world. They can allow us to walk in someone else's shoes, you know, the proverbial walk a mile in someone else's shoes. You can do that through a story. You can enter into someone's experiences who, who's lived an entirely different life than yours, and, and it can create deeper, deeper empathy for you for their circumstances. Stories are obviously used. Uh, there's a power story. The second one is power to communicate. And, you know, you see, everywhere you go, you find that people who are good storytellers get others' attention and are able to influence their attitudes and their thinking. And the third is to enable learning. And, and well, in my work, I worked many years ago with a Native American woman named Paula Underwood, and she was from the Oneida tradition. They didn't even have a word for teach because they didn't think you really could teach anyone anything. So the best you can do is enable them to learn. And so it turns out story is really a perfect medium for that. And then the fourth is to create meaning. And 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 the, and the way we discover a, you know, a sense of our, our life meaning is we look at our life stories. And as we get older, it becomes more important mm-hmm. to look back than to look mm-hmm. forward because we, we've lived more life than maybe we have ahead of us. And so harvesting our, our life mm-hmm. experiences and telling our stories becomes a way – of making sense of, of what this life has meant. And then, you know, and then you can use stories to transform both businesses and, and our life experiences. Even difficult experiences can be, um, can be worked with if, if we, if we tell stories. And, you know, one of the things that fun thing, facts I love sharing with people is that if you have children, mm-hmm. it turns out there's some researchers here at Emory in Atlanta uh, they've been studying intergenerational storytelling for 30 years, and they found that the best predictor of children having high self-esteem and resilience 
is knowing their family stories. Mm. And so families that share the stories, and not just always the good times, but also the difficult challenges and getting through difficulty, those kids do do better. That's fascinating. Then, that's fascinating. Yeah, so I think that's fascinating. And then the, the, last, the, last, the last two, one is the power story to unite. And we know that stories can do a lot to disconnect us from people and to mm-hmm. create conflict. And, and peoples throughout the ages have used stories to um, dehumanize others. And at the same time, we can use story to bring people together if you have uh, knowledge of how to use it. And finally, you know, it turns out that the areas of our brain that we use for memory, for retrospection, mm-hmm. thinking about the past, it turns out we use those same areas for prospection, about thinking for the, about the future. And it turns out that I think that people who are storytellers have a better way, a better, better tools to imagine the future and help to create it. And, and what do we need more than anything today is to be able to kind of think our way through to create a better future. We, you know, we've got a lot of challenges in this yes. world. <laughs> yes. And, and those who are, are better at envisioning and uh, will be better positioned to lead us uh, to, uh, to solve a lot of the challenges that we're facing. So those are the seven powers of story. And, and we think that there's a thing we call it story intelligence, that you know, there's, there's an intellectual intelligence. We used to think that IQ was mm-hmm. everything, and we now know that that's not the case. And so you have emotional intelligence, which came out about 25 years ago, and which is we found that people who are able to read others and understand their, their own emotions are more effective. And then there's this third thing that we call, we're calling story intelligence, and that's the title well, of the book. All right. Now I'm going to put you on. What makes a good story? You know, around the mountain here, we're storytellers. We're tall tellers. And we'll say, tell it again and tell it again. And Sometimes I tell it too many times, and they say, you've told that story before, you know, and I say, well, I'm just sharing something in my heart. Now, we know what makes a good story. Well, you know, since I'm teaching a course at High Point University mm-hmm. yes. right now, a graduate a practicum, and I just had them last night, mm-hmm. and, and, and that question's come up a lot from these kids. And, and I think that there are probably two things that really make a story really, really make a story hum, uh, and the first is, is conflict. And there's an old saying, the bigger the problem, the better the story. Absolutely. You know, and, mm-hmm. and so we're interested in people uh, who solve big problems. And, and, and there's a thing called complicating action in stories where, you know, solving one problem actually creates a bigger problem that you didn't foresee. So that, I think, is a big part. And I think the second piece with story is suspense. You know, you're wondering what's going to happen next. You know, Correct. <laughs> you know, the guy seems surrounded by lions, uh, you know, and up in the tree, there are vultures and, <laughs> and, and his enemy is around the corner. How is he going to get out of this pickle? And, uh, and, and we, that's what gets us on the edge of our seat and wants, and, 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 and if it's a really good story, we don't mind hearing it. Again right, exactly. It's, if it's got a flow to it, right, Richard? You yeah. Know, I had someone on the yeah. show recently and they were talking about a famous singer and the fellow in kept saying, sing the song, tell the story. And then my friend realized that the fellow that was saying that to the singer was his agent, you know. And I thought that was you know, <laughs> just a little sidebar there. But, yes, the, the storytelling. Now, talk some. I want to pick your brain here again for the folks. This is Henry McCarthy, Poets and Writers, WEHC 90.7, talking with Richard Stone. What's a good listener? How about listening? That's something that I could use some help on, Richard. 
Well, you know, it's interesting. You know, we, we put a lot of emphasis on storytelling, but the world needs good story listeners. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a wonderful storyteller who uh, used to come to the festival, Johnny Moses. And Johnny was from the northwest uh, part of the country. And uh, he had his background in a few different tribes there. He would start telling a story. And at some point, he would just pause. He would he would teach the audience this, but he would not continue the the, the story until the audience said Hamakawich, which in his language meant "We are listening." And this was a device that they used, obviously with children, to start with, which was to engage them with being paying attention and listening to the story, being with the story. And so you know. If the story's going along and suddenly he stops and you don't know what's going to happen to the to the protagonist in the story and and you have to say Hamakawich, I'm listening, we're with you. And so the thing that we have to also understand about listening is that we listen creatively. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, my friend Paula Underwood said, you know, uh, we're a hundred percent responsible for everything we say, but only about fifty percent responsible for whatever the other person hears. Because as we're listening, is we're recreating that story in our own imaginations. And so what often happens, you know, when you get a group yeah. of people together and someone's yeah. telling a story, and, and this is true in my family, and maybe a lot of your listeners can resonate with this, is that, you know, oh, you know, that reminds me when I was a kid. Right. And, and then we, someone takes over the story. Yeah. You know, and they, yeah. They, they go running with the story down some other road. And, they you know, start- and you go, Hey, I didn't finish my story. Wait you know? a minute. That's my uh, story, right, Richard? I'm telling you yeah. my story, and you didn't let me finish. <laughs> I, I hear that. I hear right. that. Well, around the mountain here, uh, well, and we got we got to get, I know you've come up. I don't know if you've ridden the Virginia Creeper Trail here, but I know you're a hiker, so we want to get you up here to oh, the I'd station love, yeah, up in Emory Henry yeah, College. I'd love you, to come up and do that. Well, that would be, that'd be lovely. And Absolutely. you're not too far from Jonesboro because we're all running down there. So listening is important. Uh, about the story and so go ahead and share a few other ideas here as we begin to move along on the show today richard stone a power of storytelling and you certainly have used it in business and in many ways Uh, and we're really talking about conversation and the power of empathic response sort of well that's right you know and and you know, I'll tell you another thing about listening that i learned uh, many years ago i was working with a chaplain who was uh, at the time when I was in Orlando, he worked for Orlando Regional Healthcare. It's now called, I think, Orlando Health. And he told me something that has stuck with me all these years. He said, you know, often if if someone has uh, had a traumatic injury or accident and uh, the family, maybe the family was there when it happened or, you know, they, they, uh, they witnessed it or they, they, they came right afterwards, and he was often the first person to sit down with the family. And he said, they don't tell me the story of what happened once or twice. They keep telling it over and over again. They might be there at the hospital for days. Yes. And we as listeners, we think it's about information. And so, you know, you want to say, I got it. You know, you told yes. me that yesterday, right? Because uh, we're not patient enough. And it's not about the information. Is that we start storing trauma as a way of healing. Absolutely. And so so with people who have been through difficulty and trauma, if we create the space for them to tell the story and maybe be willing to listen to it over and over again, there comes a point where something shifts for them. They can move on from it. 
Yeah. But it requires a, a patient and a compassionate listener. And so what, the, the gift we can give to others, especially who are struggling, have gone through something difficult, is to be willing to listen. And to listen just with, without interjecting, without judging, without bringing our own story in. Although the time sometimes we're to let something like that happen. And maybe, maybe there might be a lesson in the way you dealt with it that would be worth sharing. But, you know, I, I think yeah. the first impulse yeah. is just to listen. Absolutely. And I think that's, I think that's uh, and most of us just uh, don't understand that, I think. And so I, I've, I've, I've learned that in my life. And when my uh, wife's first husband, he got cancer in his 40s, and he didn't last very long. And, and I was actually... Uh, traveling, teaching in, in, in Wales, in England. Uh, and so I flew back in time for the funeral. And, um, and you know, and the first thing that, you know, she had to do was she was sort of, because they uh, have a son together, he's my stepson, and I'm very close to him. And, you know, she, she, didn't, she kept on telling the story of, you know, the, his last hours. Um, that, and, and, I, and I just knew I had just to listen. <laughs> And that's the that's all I had to do was listen. I didn't have to fix it for her. I didn't have to do anything exceptional. I just had to listen. And that I think is the big gift that you can give to others is to do that for them. Richard Stone, thank you so much for sharing your insight today about the power of storytelling and story intelligence. Well, Richard, you have certainly helped educate us today here on Poets and Writers, and I want to thank you for being on. Thank you. I'm very sincere. Oh, I, I appreciate you having me. It's been, a, it's been a, a great pleasure to be with you today. So thank you very much, and thank you for listening to Poets and Writers. I'm going out to write a poem. Do not wait up for me. I'm going out to write a poem and watch the children play. This is Henry McCarthy. <laughs>